You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we're going to be taking a look with our ears at something a little bit different. We're going to be looking at the 1978 concept album, Jeff Wayne's musical version of The War of the Worlds. Strange green jets of gas are seen erupting from the surface of Mars, but experts conclude that there is little chance that they could have any interaction with Earth. Days later, the first of the cylinders arrive on Earth at Horsell Common. They prove to be capsules containing Martians. Unfriendly Martians who, from their crater, unleash a deadly heat ray. But life in England continues relatively unfazed. While the military tries to cordon off the cylinder, soon the Martians have built gigantic war machines which come forth and begin destroying wantonly. The British military is no match for them. Our narrator flees his home near Horsell Common and heads towards London to find his beloved. He meets with a dispirited artilleryman whose unit has been wiped out in an instant. They travel together and along the way witness a battery of cannon destroy a war machine. The victory is all too brief as the Martians give a devastating heat ray response. Our two travelers are separated and the narrator narrowly escapes in the scalding river. Arriving at his beloved's father's home, they are gone and he is despondent. He continues to the coast, hoping to find passage out of England. Civilization is being routed, and there is a mass migration of six million people fleeing the city, hoping to escape. At the coast, a steamer is just leaving, and he catches a glimpse of his beloved on the deck of the ship. War machines wade out into the water to intercept the craft, but they encounter the Royal Navy's ironclad, the Thunderchild. To the delight of the crowd, the Thunderchild scores a victory against a war machine, but its comrades turn the heat ray on the Thunderchild, sending it to Davy Jones's locker. The steamer has used the opportunity to escape to sea. Red Martian vegetation is now overrunning the land and clogging the waterways, and the landscape of Earth is being changed. Spying what he believes to be a dead parson, the narrator stops to do the decent thing and bury him. The parson is not dead, and his wife soon joins them. The parson is descending into madness. He sees the events as the biblical prophecies of Satan rising, and he has given up. His wife maintains her optimism, but soon she's killed when another cylinder lands on the cottage they've taken refuge in. Here, they witness another terrible Martian weapon, the black dust, which they spray from their war machines. They also witness what the Martians are doing on Earth. They are collecting and using humans as food. The Parson's madness turns to messianistic zeal as he decides only his prayers can defeat the Martians. His shouting attracts the attention of the Martians, and the narrator knocks him unconscious. However, a Martian claw finds the unconscious body of the Parson and drags him away to be eaten. After a time, the Martians leave, and the narrator can continue his way. He encounters once more the artilleryman, who is now a man with a plan. In order for mankind to survive, they must build a new, better world, hidden from the Martians underground. His vision is grand and sweeping, full of hope of retaking the planet for those who are willing to see and implement his vision. It soon becomes apparent to the narrator that he is long on vision, short on implementation, and is living in a dream world of his own imagination. The narrator departs company and continues on his way back to London. London lies in state, shrouded in the black dust, an abandoned, wrecked city, silent save for the plaintive wails of the Martians. War machines stand sentinel over the city. When the wailing stops and the city falls completely silent, madness overcomes the narrator. He decides to surrender himself to the Martians and get it over with. When he approaches one of the war machines, he realizes that the Martians are all dead, a victim of Earth's bacteria. Things return to normal, and our narrator is reunited with his beloved as he ponders what, if anything, the Martians will do next. Nearly a hundred years later, an American Mars probe awakens a new assault by the Martians. The end. Okay, well, this, this came about, us doing this, 
um, because of how awful the BBC uh, version was uh, not too terribly long back. And uh, I did a little research, and, and there is supposedly one version that's better than this. It's like the, I forgot what its name is, but it's a very low budget, almost a student film kind of thing. But this one is highly regarded as pretty accurate to the original story. So I thought, ah, I hadn't listened to it in a long time. I thought, this is definitely something new and different we can try. So uh, what did you think? Uh, what did you know about this before uh, we decided to do it? Um, well, um, I I knew it. I haven't listened to it, maybe like you, I haven't listened to it for a, a long time. And... I guess I've never listened to it that carefully. I mean, you know, listening to it doing a podcast, you're listening to it with a level of attention that even when we're doing TV episodes, I'm like, because I'm sort of taking notes and thinking what, what, what's going on here? What, 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 what am I going to say about this when we talk about it? Whereas if I'm just watching television, then often I'll just be sort of, sitting back and just seeing what happens and mm. listening to music and you know I, we can discuss exactly what this count says but listening to music is even more a kind of not that not that there aren't occasions when one i mean one goes to a, a, a classical concert or whatever listen to the music quite carefully even listening to cds at home i'll sometimes pay quite close attention to it but equally might put a favorite disc on just sort of spin it in the background enjoy the noise not even always necessarily attend all of the the lyrics so so i get i guess you can say it's the it's the first time i've sort of sat down well i wasn't sitting down actually that's one of the advantages of <laughs> looking at something with our ears um but but you know listening to the whole thing much more carefully with the kind of view of looking at the the kind of the structure and the narrative perspective that runs through all of the the music and the the kind of soundtrack i i found it kind of hard um i i listened to this for the first time in decades uh i don't know yeah. shortly yeah. after the bbc one came out I don't, I don't know how long ago that was pre-pandemic somewhere so maybe a couple years and i listened to it and you know i really enjoyed it but i just i did I did listen to it, but I wasn't trying to take notes or anything like that. I found it very difficult to listen to this and take notes. I had to take it in pretty short blocks. I expected to be able to do this, and it was a lot harder than I thought. And I'm not sure why, because, I don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. Maybe it's just my mind was is geared up towards doing TV, and without that, it um, it really just kind of threw me out of the out of the groove but i i should say that i am uh dating myself here a bit uh i was taking uh in high school i was taking a, a literature course on great science fiction works in either 1979 or 1980 and we were doing some hg wells i think actually we were doing the time machine uh which is a much shorter book than war of the worlds but one day the teacher brought this in on vinyl because that's what there was or, or, you know, or eight track, but he brought it in on vinyl and that was our assignment for the day was we sat and listened to this at least part one. I think the, the first, the first volume for the class. And I hadn't heard that again until, you know, whenever it was a year ago when I re-listened to this. So and and the first time I ever listened to the whole thing, and and I was struck. I I really don't remember a lot about it except that I'm sure that the other students and at least the teachers in the adjoining rooms were not happy with our class because we all joined in with the Martians every time we got an ooh la. <laughs> Like the whole class just, it, it came spontaneously um, out of them. It's, it's very odd uh, how that worked. But yeah, I'm sure that was, I'm sure that was a hoot for the people next door. <laughs> but uh, 
Yeah. It, so this was a. This is also feels like a piece of the past to me because you don't hear concept albums, or at least I don't hear concept albums anymore. And it's it's just sort of a thing. I don't know. Maybe they do still make them, but I just don't recall too many of them. So it, it's it's an it's an interesting idea to try to to tell a story and and musically and I mean I get a, I get that that's what a musical is, but it seems to kind of put this flip it on its end. It's music and then talking as opposed to talking with music. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, I, 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 one of the things I've been thinking about is what exactly is it? It's, it's not, I don't think it's the first time we've, we've looked at something on audio. Certainly you and John have been looking at the, the Space 1999 stuff on audio. So it's not like we haven't, we haven't done that medium in some form mm. but it but it is a bit the the it's the album part of it that is a bit different and i mean i i really i like it both you know as an album and as a way of telling the war of the worlds but it 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 makes me wonder well where you know where where does that fit where did that come from because one in terms of audio the i mean i've i'm a huge fan of audio drama and right. I'm particularly, you know, I'm particularly familiar with with British radio drama. We've got a tradition that goes way back to when radio drama would have been the the kind of popular broadcast form of drama because, you know, pre-television or when a lot of people didn't have television. And I and I think that in those days you had a lot more of it in the the states as well. Though I'm I'm less familiar. Yes, with yes, that. we did. And 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 it's and it and it's kind of survived, you know. Radio Four, our spoken word radio, national radio network over here, has carried on producing radio drama throughout. But a lot of that radio drama was, and you know, to be fair, probably is, people talking like you know an an audio recording of a stage play. Um, yeah, albeit one like the in which stuff, yeah. the the dialogue well not exactly because i i think the big finish stuff is is quite is quite different in a way from the the traditional the traditional kind of radio dramas that i'm gonna i'm gonna put down a marker of of 1978 as a turning point in this and when we started when when i knew we were going to listen to the war of the worlds it did sort of it struck me as something maybe more than a coincidence that it was released in 1978. My reason for thinking 1978 is a turning point is because I remember being very struck by a comment I read that Douglas Adams made. I think it was in, in uh, Neil Gaiman's biography where he expresses his intention, his vision in creating Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy the radio series this is the original mm -hmm. version of hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy that was broadcast on radio 4 in early 1978 i've checked the dates um it the first series went out um early in 78 war of the worlds was released in june and mm -hmm. and and what adam said was he wanted to make a radio drama that sounded different and the the phrase he chose was he wanted it to sound like a concept album Okay. And it's true when you listen to what the the radiophonic workshop does with hitchhikers the music is completely interwoven with the narrative. It's perhaps not something that is entirely new if you look at film where soundtrack has always well often been a a strong element of what you see on screen but typically up to that point in radio plays the the music was the kind of the audio furniture it was the thing that bookended scenes and and indicated you were moving from one location to another or from one or maybe a sting it, yeah yeah a li little bit of little bit of drama but e but even then i i don't i don't think that's necessarily particularly a british thing i think that's that's more commonplace in in the you know the sort of radio serials of the 1950s and the, and those those adaptations of of um cinema that kind of 
were. Uh, I would agree. And, and you know, radio. I, I think a lot of that has to do with how they were produced. Right. I mean, a lot of them were live. Oh, and yes, absolutely. So you're not going to have a you're not going to be weaving a lot of orchestral music in there. You're going to have the performance do their thing. And then when you change scenes, you're going to run to some music, perhaps to, I don't know what they had to do in that case, shuffle people around on the mics or whatever. But yeah, I, I, I can see that. Whereas when you're putting out an album, when you're putting together a TV show or not a TV show, let's say a movie, you have a lot of post-production time and you have a lot of uh, pieces coming together. So yeah, no, I, I can, I can see that. And you put your finger on it there. I think with, with talking about albums, because that wouldn't have been new. I mean, the concept album wasn't, that new in 1978 it was perhaps mm. relatively new but the the fact is an album would have been produced in a completely different way you know it would have been weeks and weeks of preparation and then you know you'd have you'd have much the the ratio of 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 studio time to minute minute of of mm-hmm. pr- produced audio i mean we're talking music rather than speech like you say the kind of the traditions, the, the 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 economics of producing radio theatre was very much. If we're not we're not necessarily going to put this out live, um, certainly by 1978. But the reality is that is how we that is how we're going to take on the recording of it. The the you know the sound effects would have been done by you know someone walking <laughs> right up there. a drive. Would have had, you'd yeah. have had a you'd have had a tray of gravel in that studio and someone marching up and down on it, whereas you can imagine that that what what must have gone into War of the Worlds and every every kind of piece of sound in this would have been layered in, so you would have been able to to combine um, you know different elements using post production. I, I want to say uh, I don't have it in front of me, so if I get this slightly wrong. Don't hold me to it, but it's not completely wrong. I believe that this is the first album ever produced on a 48-track mixing system. Okay, so yeah, there you go. And and yeah, the idea of a 48-track mixing system for something you did on the radio, you know, no, you'd have basically Stereo, a crowd, crowd around the same <laughs> mic and, and maybe you'd have a second mic for the, the guy tramping in the gravel box. So right. it could not be more different. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, speaking of concept albums, oddly enough, the oldest one I can think of is the 60s. I don't have the number, the date on it, but it's the Moody Blues Days of Future Past, which is actually, uh, I, I love that album. Um, and one of the lead singers, is, of course, Justin Hayward, who is oh, the singer here, or the, vo- the, oh. the, the sung words of the narrator. <laughs> Or Justin Hayward. So uh, I don't know if that's yes. coincidence or not, but you know, which predisposes me to like this because I really like the Moody Blues. So as a band, so there we go. Yeah. So day, Days of Future Past was six, sixty-seven, seven or eight, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Sergeant Pepper's was sixty-seven. So yeah, be be one of the first then. It, 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 well, day, so Days of Future, un, Sergeant Pepper's does have that sort of thematic musical thing. Days of Future Past is a combination of music and like poetry. Oh, okay. So there's there's even the spoken there's word a, element. Narrator comes in and starts giving some 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 poetry, and I don't know whether it's newly composed or whether it's taken from somewhere else, and then that kind of flows into the the themes of the of this album which in that case is is a day morning noon afternoon evening yeah. of life kind of thing so yeah it's a, it, it it does remind me of this yeah the, the 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 poetry is is another interesting aspect because in a way the other thing that this reminds me of is under milkwood which is the exception when i'm thinking about radio drama being much more kind of much more like a, a a kind of stage drama that it's it it's structured it, it, in scenes and it's all in the dialogue and it, and and it's very much in what you're listening to and therefore everything everything comes through from 
what is contained within the the meaning of the dialogue itself. And then when you take something like Under Milk Wood, it's, I mean, it's, yeah, it, it's a it's a play of sorts, but it's, it's poetry, really, I think, and, and it's creating a soundscape with the words. The, 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 you know, the original, the, the, the 1954 radio production of it. Um, and I may be particularly drawing parallels because we're listening to Richard Burton here. And Richard Burton was the original first voice in Under Milkwood. Mm. And that, that feels like an important part of this it's it's his hg wells words and yeah it, uh, sort of not of strictly HG. not strictly i i Is went it all through rewritten? it's not all rewritten but there are certain lines there are certain lines that are absolutely straight out of hg wells there are other yes. lines that are very very close but have been tweaked a bit like i think there's one where um well it'd have to be i mean there's plot differences as well there are plot differences, but it's like I think when the Martians are being destroyed, he says something to the effect of, "He says they're put here by the by the lowliest things on Earth." And in the original, in this exact same line, except it gets that point instead of the lowliest things put here by God on this Earth. Things like that have been slightly reworked, but you know, London lies in state That's, in her yeah. black shroud, all straight out of. Mass migrate the route of civilization. Six million people, unprovisioned and unarmed. You know, all of that is is straight out of H.G. Wells. Because luckily, it's on Project Gutenberg. So I took a lot of the quotes I liked and I searched them, and some are there, and some not at all. Just so there, it, it's it's a no. I think it's a good job taking his real yeah, words oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Then also making I'm them work out. And it's fair enough. I don't necessarily expect expect it all to be H.G. Wells, but I think I think the point about it is the the prose. A lot of that prose is rather beautiful, and it's incredibly atmospheric. and And it is, in a sense, it's a it's a story. And I'm you know bearing in mind I have still not read the novel. <laughs> okay. But a, a lot a lot a lot of what seems to me important about it is actually in the atmosphere the plot itself is not you know it's mm. i'm not i don't want to describe the plot as being thin but well that's fair no that's it, fair actually it, it, so it's um the original book is is the reason nobody ever makes the original book is it's one man wandering around the countryside bouncing from thing to thing without i mean there really isn't a, a through line there because the whole point of this is that the earth has been thrown up into upheaval and we are just ants running around being squashed and so he's by himself a lot he he's lost in his thoughts he's just he's just basically running commentary on what he sees and it is an extremely difficult thing to dramatize I think. And so, and it clearly no one, this, this is, this really is pretty darn close. They've just, they've removed his brother from the story. And in, in the original, he, he lives right where he lives. Horse will call him in the whole nine yards. He's lives with his wife. It's not a fiance or whatever she is betrothed or he calls her beloved, but I, I don't know since she seems to live with her father, I'm guessing it's fiance. It, it doesn't matter. But he takes his wife away on the eve of the Martians starting to damage things. And then he comes back. And when he comes back, he's trapped. And so now he spends half of his thing trying to just survive. And then he cuts to relating what happened to his brother. So the events of the Thunder Child and the Steamer and whatnot, that's, that's actually from his brother in the original story. But other than that, it, it hits all the beats. All all the major things that happen, it it hits them in the right order and with with generally it, speaking the right the right tone because it it, it is kind of a it. it's the tone yeah it's sort of a series of vignettes about you know the parson here's a man who is a pillar of his community a, a leader uh, and and why in his community because of his position 
as a member of the clergy. And in this situation, that's useless. <laughs> it, it falls apart. He can't fit his worldview with reality. And, you know, it, it, is, it is Wells making commentary on society. Yeah. And and isn't isn't that the point that that what in order in order to make the readers think differently about their kind of their worldview their their view of Britain the empire the 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 position of well I don't I mean don't know whether it's Britain and or humanity but it's it's to it's to it's to imaginatively shift them into this alternative position and so actually the key thing is is that sense of what it's like you mm -hmm. know it the the plot doesn't have to be much more than the martians invade the earth and you know wipe almost everyone out and the red weeds you know take takes over and it's it, 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 it's it's an apocalypse and mm -hmm. the important that that you know the plot does not have to be much more than that so calling it thin is not a, is not a, a a criticism because what's what is important about it is the kind of sense of that and that's what i think is so clever about this album it's so atmospheric because mm -hmm. you have this you have this thing of taking taking the words which you know don't have to be exactly wells words but are a lot of them are wells words or or as you say, sensitively ad adapted versions of it. You take Burton, who is, you know, he's he's just a fantastic. Wonderful voice. He just <laughs> he's, he's, a, he, he's so exciting to listen to. And again, you know, that's what makes that that original um, Under Milk Wood so satisfying. And then you combine it with the music, and the, and the music is foreground a lot of the time. I mean, that's the real difference mm -hmm. from the. The, the kind of dramas that we've been talking about the the music is foreground but it is it's giving you the feelings the yeah. the you know the excitement the just all of it you know it's it i just think i think it's really effective yeah and it, of course for me and I, and I was kind of wondering how this works for you uh because of the difference in our age this is the kind of music that i listened to uh, this is the kind of instrumentation that that and and orchestration that is what was what I was listening to in my music formative years. So to me, this is a blast from the past. This is like oh, this is an old friend kind of style of music. Even even songs I hadn't heck, uh, Forever Autumn. Uh, I I have that in my music collection. I didn't even know it was from this. <laughs> I totally did not know. I've heard the Eve of War a thousand times used in in various clip shows and and science fictiony things where someone's obviously just picked it up and go, "Yeah, we're going to use that." And never knew that that was from this album, but it all just has this for me it just has this old familiar feel and I could picture somebody who grew up in a different era of music having this i don't know feel out of place have it not work i'm not sure but to me it just it, it's as comfortable like a glove well i think it's fair to say that i i'm a slightly different era i i would not have listened to this when it first came out i you know i was still busy with you know things like learning to speak and that so well you're supposed to be listening to music when you're when you're that age <laughs> anyway well Possibly, but this this was never something that was in my parents' record collection. So, a lot of my parents' records would have been classical music or or stuff from the the nineteen sixties. Yeah, we're talking Cliff about Cliff Richards. No, no, that was that was what I got into. I got into Cliff oh. for for some reason, but then I got into all sorts of music. I mean, the thing is, and this 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 may be a minority opinion amongst my generation but i i was my formative musical years were in the 1980s mm -hmm. and i thought a lot of the music in the 1980s was rubbish so i just i wasn't that interested in it so i might have picked up something i mean i i 
I did go back to to the Beatles and stuff like that. I might have picked up something like War of the Worlds and been interested in it. I think I was I was probably in my later teens by the time I actually heard this for the first time. So it wasn't necessarily something that kind of struck home or was on my record player for weeks and weeks and weeks. Mm. But well it probably did strike home in a in a degree. I can't I can't hear the Eve of War without you know, the chances of anything coming from space are a million to one. They say it just yeah. I just I, I, I love I mean those opening tracks and the way the way the the narration and the instrumentals and then the choruses just all hang together to give you the sense of the the kind of horror and the enormity and the surprise of that invasion and all all of the dialogue about how life kind of went on as normal while these mm-hmm. night after night this oh god I mean yeah. That is just, it's I, it's fantastic, it, and it and it's another one of those things right out of out of Wells is that he he is making a commentary on how this enormous thing is happening. Obviously, before they start slaughtering everyone right and left, but and yet, you know, the newspapers are running, the trains are fine. It's all everyone's just going about their business, thinking, looking at the paper, going, "Oh yeah, Martians," you know, <laughs> and it yeah. and it and it and it. Boy, they turn that on the edge. In no time, but there is a commentary about uh, us and our routine and our, you know, stuck in our ways of life and not necessarily seeing the enormity of what's happening. Yeah, like a frog being boiled. Yeah, slowly. Uh, I do want to switch back and say one of the things that that everyone ever always says about War of the Worlds, and I'm not saying it's wrong, okay, is that it's all about colonialism and. I think that's slightly a simplification. I think it is about humanity and I, I, as a whole, because if I recall correctly, Wells is making more of us as a comparison to animals than he is to natives. And he's, he's, he is in a way talking about all kinds of, you know, what we do to animals is not much different from what we do to people that we go in and conquer in fact, a lot of people yeah, treat them yeah, exactly I mean, like the, animals. So, I mean, it's on the scale, but I mean, it is, it is the human... There's an imperialist mindset there. Yeah, it's it's not just Britain. It is all humans have that sort of thing. So, I think it's, you know... It, it, so, when people say, you know, maybe this show isn't as relevant post-colonial era, it's like, no, it, it, it absolutely... Everything that happens here is completely relatable yeah. Even to people who didn't grow up in the colonial era, you know, uh, or, or or in Britain or yeah, well, I, it's yeah, absolutely I, the human experience. I, I I think it would be premature to say imperialism and the imperialist mindset has completely gone away. So true that that true. But, you know, like the, e- the BBC even that War of the Worlds made it about freaking climate change to, to some degree. I mean, <laughs> just it's like we got we got to make this relevant to the it's like. No, this is this is this is relevant to humans. All humans, you should see this. You should realize this. That this is uh, th- this is uh, is us. W- one of the things that did not make it to this album, it's hinted at, but it it doesn't make it to the album, is when he meets up with the artillerymen again. I think mm-hmm. Jeff Wayne has concentrated on the sort of rebel. Uh, uh, you know Karl Marx or or, or he he is he is concentrating on on those people who come up with this idea of how to turn the world on its edge and get people to fall for their thing. But really, when it comes around to getting to it, they're kind of rubbish. And and that is exactly also what happens in the book. But his vision of what is going to happen, the artilleryman is actually very is actually quite. I don't want to say clairvoyant, but he he's got a a much broader vision of what's going to happen. They're going to they're going to round up people. They're going to start feeding them and fattening them up like cattle. They're going to be breeding them for the ones that don't uh, fight. They're probably going to have some of them that are pets. They're going to use. They're going to train some of them to hunt other humans. You know, and and then his people going to have to be that we're going to have to not devolve into wild men we're going to have to we're going to have to get smarter and better and and 
we're going to have to, you know, hang on to our humanity, but also turn that into, we can't just let anybody in. We're going to have to weed out the, the stupos and the, the, you know, the, the bad people. It is, it's very, uh, it's much more, uh, uh, us versus them than it is here. And it, they kind of, I don't know, almost soft pedal it a little bit in this, but he, he's definitely making, you know, basically inclusivity tests to make sure you're worth having as part of his civilization. Yeah. Uh, fascism rather yeah. than being a kind of lazy idealist. I, I do love his, his statement of the things that they need to build, right? We're going to have to set up a, what we need are banks, prisons, and schools. Who on earth, <laughs> who on earth would prioritize those things in that order? It's like, really? Prisons is the second yeah. thing you think of? Really? Banks is the first? If you're a capitalist, okay, banks, there you go. Schools, though, you would think that they wouldn't want that because they want the people stupid so they can control them. But perhaps when you're, I, I don't know, it, it just it's a weird combination. And and he said and he says we we won't have poetry, but we will have cricket. Yes, so, well, yeah. Well, competitive, gotta beat them. Yeah, it, it's it's um, yeah. I I I really enjoy kind of the when they delve into these characters and just give this sort of that that look at, at what Wells was trying to say and in the original story. And uh, yeah, no, I, I I'm really impressed. I, I I am really impressed with this album. And I only got my one word in, but I'm just going to say, again, Richard Burton was absolutely fantastic in this. I mean, he yeah. just, just amazing voice. I'm not like a huge fan of Richard Burton either. I, I'm i sure I've seen him in some movies, but I was like, yeah, he's okay. But uh, he did a hell of a job here. I mean, he just absolutely is is a, a, a perfect voice for this. Yeah, no, he, he. I mean, he does. He does have a wonderful voice, and I think. I think that is a big part of what is so. What is so great about this? Um, I mean, obviously, the the music is, for the most part, fantastic, and that makes a big difference. And I, and actually, I think. I mean, I was saying saying this the other day. I've been I've been watching through through the whole lockdown. A, a friend and I have have because you know we can't go to the cinema we've been watching some of our old favorite films just to revisit and it's been interesting to note that a lot of the films that i've wanted to go back to they're also the films that have a really a really cracking soundtrack mm -hmm. you know the, the films that i i find are particular classics are films where i've also got the the cd on my shelf and I think there is, you know, talking talking about there being a combination of the the dialogue that you're hearing, the way in which that dialogue is performed, but also that being combined with music to to create a rhythm. And obviously, in the in the case of of film, the kind of visuals and the photography of it, and you know, the direction too. But it but it is that it is that creating something that has that has a rhythm that is repeatable in the way that you don't think twice about putting an album that you like on you know and and maybe even sticking it on repeat but certainly listening to this listening to it again the next day and listening to it again the next day in a way that you probably don't necessarily watch a film that you've just watched again at least right. in most cases there are a few there are a few where i could think yeah i could just I could watch that again. But like I say, it has a lot to do with music. I could quite happily now sit down and listen to The War of the Worlds again. It wouldn't feel like it was repetitive. It wouldn't feel like the suspense had gone because I knew what was coming next. Because you get you get lost in listening to the music in, and the sound of Burton's voice is part of that, I think. Yeah. It's the sound of everything. You're thinking about what nature of beast is this fish flesh or fowl you i guess you know you think about musicals are mm -hmm. a a way of doing a play but sticking music in it right. and uh, i'm not a huge fan of musicals but there are some musicals i do really really like this ain't one this because in a musical 
at least the standard format is, your characters talk in a normal way, at least mm-hmm. as normal as it would be if they were on stage in a play, and then suddenly they burst into song for a musical number, and then you have a bit more dialogue as a play, and then you have another musical number. And this yeah. this isn't like this. This is like constant music. This in that in one sense, it's much more like an opera where where the music runs through it. And except in an opera, everything is sung. Yeah. And here you've obviously got the dialogue as well as the music. So I I I, I can't pigeonhole this. I I don't no, it, quite know it what is, to call it. It's not just a concept album, though. I tell you what, I do th- does make me when I listen to this. I do, in any concept album, actually, that, that I've heard, Days of Future Past, for example, there is a certain amount of... Um, I get a feeling from the album that, that the, let's call them the producer, is trying to be profound. I think that is, that is the, that's the key. They are trying to make a point above and beyond the music they are trying to it, it 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 feels a little bit like when or if you've ever heard stoners talking about how deep and profound pink floyd's dark side of the moon is which is a great album but there is that sort of oh that is so profound and i i get that feeling from this but at the same time they succeeded so it works <laughs> it's like yeah, there may be a subjectivity to that. Yeah, judgment. Yes. Oh, oh, absolutely. I, I, <laughs> I mean, I like it. I like it for the most part. I guess, I guess there are bits that I like more than other bits. So, we've talked. We've talked about the, it, you know, in terms of the numbers, um, the eve of war, mm-hmm. and and um, forever autumn. Yeah which which are which are great tracks um and in a way they when when i'm listen i've never i never thought about this before because like i kind of say i'm just sticking an album on and listening to the music and then maybe tuning into it sometimes but possibly doing something else as well and then i've listened to this for the podcast looking at how the narrative is conveyed and it is quite interesting how Forever Autumn is is Richard Burton's character's mm-hmm. mood, his feelings, yes. but not his voice. And I, I, I really liked that. I really liked because, because, you know, again, it comes back to this idea of you are creating something where the tone is the important thing. It's it is the, the feeling that it gives you and the words and the music are the emotion that that the, the the journalist the narrator is is experiencing at that time and mm-hmm. then obviously you know you get burton's voice over the top of it and that kind of meshes with the fact that that's that that is basically what all of the music is doing in a sense it is conveying the the feelings that our our narrator are kind of our insight into this story right is is experiencing and the contrast there, I think, is something like with... So Spirit of Man... Spirit of Man, yeah. It, it feels just a little bit to me... I, I, I don't want to be down on it, but it, it has a sense of, you know, in Spam a lot, the song that goes like this? Yes, it, yes. It, that, song, that song could come straight out of a stage musical, I think. Yes, it is. It is very much a stage. And it, it's a duet. It's two people singing back and forth and having uh, alternate points of view, if you if you will. But yeah, it's it's very it, much a musical. It, and so and is takes, the other one. It, uh, the Brave New World. Brave New World. That That is, yeah, I'm, I'm going to talk to you and now I'm going to burst into song. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we, yeah, which is exactly, you know, what we're talking about with the musical. Um, I, I, I mean, I think particularly the thing with the song that goes like, this or maybe both of them is that it takes you part of the problem is it takes you away from burton's narration because the song the the actual lyrical element of the song becomes much more foregrounded you Mm -hmm. can't just have burton you you can't you can't go in into an instrumental chorus and have burton then narrating over the top of it the 
the song has so many verses and choruses and that is that is taking the the kind of full foreground of what you're listening to at the time and Burton has just vanished at that point I kind of feel like Brave New World there's a little bit more kind of it's a little bit more coherent in the in the sense that the the artillery man it is almost like the fact he bursts into song is an expression of this this vision that he has and the way in which it right, is an un, an unreal vision okay that's that's fair actually that's that's fair i don't know if it's intentional but it certainly fits and he is he is painting an unrealistic world yeah yeah i i agree with you it it also feels like something different something that you know could come from a musical but i guess i liked it more that you know that's what it what it came down to whereas um <laughs> spirit of man yeah yeah spirit spirit of man i just i didn't and and so who who was the parson played by that wasn't that wasn't that wasn't justin hayward was um essex was it no essex david essex is the artillery man right the parson was um you know it's it was phil lynott who uh, who I don't know anything about, but I I I just I didn't particularly take to the performance, so I guess maybe that that coloured my view of the song as well. One of the things uh, that I have found, uh, having added this collection to my music collection, now parts of it come up on shuffle. Definitely, if Spirit of Man comes up, it, it gets the boot. Okay, maybe it's not just me. <laughs> I, I and I'm just not crazy about it, but I'll, I honestly, like I say, Eve of War and and Forever Autumn are both fantastic songs, and I like listening to them. But if I'm listening to music, I would prefer the Forever Autumn version that doesn't have Richard Burton's narration. It's just the, the single version of it. Mm. And because this album is broken up into, I don't know, 10 tracks or something like that, when it shuffles, if a shuffle track comes up and it's Richard Burton starts talking, it, it's going to get the boot. And it's not that I don't like it. It's just that it's not in my mindset of listening to music. I I genuinely, generally dislike spoken word albums. So this one is, is a but it has to be taken to me as a piece, as, as a work of as a work of narrative, as opposed to Oh yeah. But what do you I, what do you like mean by so. a spoken word album? It you know, is there is there other stuff like I suppose Well, any album where oh tell you what i'll give you one i can't stand the x-files soundtrack got one track on it i like the theme the rest of them have somebody talking over them i never listen to them okay i it's just me they'll just have they'll have Mulder and scully do you mean is it one of the mark snow albums yes the first one that came out yeah so it's not it's because there are there are x-files ones that are all commercial tracks and so so it's, it's clips of audio from the from the mm-hmm. um, show, from the show, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I mean, I've got a couple. The my Thomas Crown soundtrack has little excerpts between the tracks from the film, which you know is okay when you're listening to to the to the album itself. The only the only thing I can think of where you know it's kind of a, it is a spoken word thing, which I guess is it corresponds to this thing we're talking about in terms of the the word the. The, combina- the combination of words with music where the rhythm of the words is important is I have an album by um, Dana Bryant who did The Jackal, but the, the, this entire album is essentially all spoken word. It's poetry over music. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, the, you know, I don't know. I still think of that as music. I don't, I don't know. Putting, putting War of the Worlds in, in the shuffle does seem a bit like sacrilege to me it doesn't seem like you should break it down into bits i think my brain processes music and spoken word differently even even singing as opposed to spoken word differently so it intrudes upon my thought processes when somebody just starts talking and i I don't like that and so that is why when i'm listening music on shuffle it doesn't uh, it doesn't I would like not to forget. So of the major vignettes that happened, right? We have we have the the bits about the initial arrival and how life went on and people were disbelieving and and, and we have the parson and the artilleryman. Another one that I I love 
is the Thunderchild sequence. Mm-hmm. I I really like the notion of the crowd cheering on the Thunderchild as it scores a victory against the Martians. And we get that a little bit from the canons earlier in the in the show. And it's like techno- Earth technology can deal damage to these creatures. But every time it does, the Martians just turn around and absolutely scorch Earth and wipe them out. But nonetheless, the people are there cheering on the vessel. And I actually wonder if this is why, when, for example, uh, Britain, well, we'll pick Britain, (laughs) goes into some quote-unquote primitive country and takes it over where they're just running around with spears and loincloths and with absolutely positively devastating, overwhelming firepower and technological advantages and can slaughter them in their thousands. And yet people still fight back. And, and, and yet the little victories, you score a little victory and you really get people on your side. And then they crush them again, obviously. But... It, it 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 really rings. We know it's hopeless. You're watching this. We from our view as the as the listener, we know it's hopeless. The Thunder Child doesn't stand a chance. From the moment he even mentions it, pulls out into view, you know the war machines are going to take that thing down, guaranteed. Hmm. The audience or the the people on the shore don't necessarily know that, but but nonetheless, you know there is that the, the hope that we're going to do this. And it does make me think, you know, the artilleryman is right. If you could get hold of some of those war machines, maybe someday you could fight back. Maybe somebody, someday you could take back your planet from the colonizers. It, it is, um, I, I, I really like that. I really like that scene. Not, not from its, not from its devastating loss, but just the spirit of man there which is a more appropriate use for the title than where they put it in the, in the yeah. story. But, you know, uh, I, I, th- that was the major one. The other, the, the other question I have for you is, doesn't really happen in War of the Worlds stories, except in the BBC one, and I think they botched it magnificently, if I'm using that word correctly. What happens next? You know, we, we end... War of the Worlds, the Martians have been wiped out by bacteria, and hooray, we can all go back to our lives and rebuild. What does mankind do next? Ignoring the little NASA ending that they've put on here. Because well, I think that I mean, doesn't work. I, I think I think that's ridiculous that, you know, they would be going to Mars and not be preparing for the fact that there were Martians there a hundred years after we've been invaded by the Martians. And so kind of ignoring that but I, i'm thinking we'd go after them well i quite like it in a way i i i i agree it's kind of it's incongruous because apart from the fact that as you say we would we would remember the threat from mars and we would be alert to that it's also suggesting a kind of a parallel progression of scientific progress to what actually happened because i don't i mean i don't know where you got the the timing from in your in your synopsis but i'm i am kind of assuming that we are talking about late late 20th century and yeah earth 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 has been devastated yeah and yet we've you know we've still we've still basically been able to put together a mission to mars by the 70s i am using modern day as my assumption there for NASA right. or, yes. or slightly thereafter yeah. well certainly unit dating later unit that. dating you know it's it's interesting there is that assumption there so it almost it almost seems to me like it takes you out of it it's a, it's a parallel universe it's the it's it's shifted mm-hmm. from from the the hg Wells story into our own reality and is suggesting actually this this was just a story and this never happened. But then in our reality, yeah, you get a, the green flares and this this could happen now. And it's not just the painful American accents. I just don't like 
I just don't like that ending. <laughs> I was I was going to ask you about. They they're kind of painful. I I I I I I did quite like the ending. Sorry, I've, that wasn't your question. What I've forgotten what you asked. Oh, what would mankind actually do? Oh yes, would yeah. Um, well, I I don't know. Would I don't know about going after them because I don't think that. It, the, certainly immediately you'd necessarily have that capability there'd be so many other priorities and by the time by the time you'd kind of rebuilt civilization to a point where you had the capability of even thinking about putting something on mars if there had been no sign and it would be many many years later would it still be something that there would be strong support to go ahead and do i don't know I definitely think at the initial stages there would be a huge amount of preparation put into what do we do if they come back, as in what do we do if they come back next week, next month, next year. Not not necessarily how do we repel them, because that may be impossible, but how do we survive? I There is a, there is a, 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 there's a, a school of thought that says if you take people, a group of people, and you just smash them, the the weak die the best survive the motivation is there they come back stronger and harder faster and i kind of see that happening here i i yes you you say the civilization's ruined and absolutely it is and it will take time to build back but who's to say that the people in charge are going to do what what perhaps you or i would do and say let's prioritize making sure people have you know, houses again, and let's make sure you prioritize that people uh, are, are fed. Uh, and instead, let's prioritize the military and make sure that we can repel an attack from Mars. For start with that. I'm not necessarily saying that's... Because I think they would. But but I, in a way, would think you would you would actually be considering going, okay, the Martians... Of course, back then, germ theory was pretty early on. You know, I can honestly see them, because rockets weren't an unknown concept, I could absolutely see them trying to figure out a way to shoot bacteria at Mars. If nothing other than yeah, to I guess, take the maybe. problem back and say, you know, let's, let's nip this in the bud. Because that's kind of the thing humans do. Uh, not very nice about it, but... I mean, I don't think it would matter much because my my point isn't necessarily that people wouldn't try to do that. It's just they wouldn't succeed in or, in order to get into a position where they had the kinds of capabilities to do that. They would have to actually rebuild society to a degree because they would need to have the the scientific base. They would need to have the manufacturing base. They would need, in order to develop those things, to educate and house people who could actually design and develop their rocket program. But if you have a goal and you have a fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what I guess what I guess I'm I'm pondering is you might start out with that goal. And indeed it might lead to you rebuilding in in some ways in some ways that are positive because, you know, like I say, a, a education is a good in itself, even if even if it's being done as a means to something less mm-hmm. wholesome um it's just that by the time you actually got to the point of being able to build a rocket capable of going all the way to mars my question would be in all the years that have passed getting to that point if nothing had shown as be, uh, you know any if there were no signs of life on mars would priorities have changed at all in that time or would you would you still be saying, yeah, no, the main thing is to fire a rocket at Mars? And of course, you know, would would the Great War have happened? Would World War Two have happened? Probably not. Indeed, in this, indeed, in this indeed. world, everything would be I, I, everything would be different. Yeah, yeah. Although the one thing that'd be the same is is that that thing of well, people do just get on with the their daily <laughs> lives. The daily lives true. get rebuilt back, and and uh, however. However focused some people may be on get the rocket to Mars, get the rocket to Mars. If if other people started getting fixated on the kind of parochial conflicts that lead to war wars between nations rather than wars between humans and Martians. A war of worlds. I think that might 
That'd be a good title. But war within war within the world. Yeah, I think it would still happen. I think. Oh, I'm you know, sure. People, but people would not be. They might initially be unified, or or just too weak to fight. But that that would not necessarily last for as long as it. As I say, it would take to build something capable of traveling to to Mars. So I'll throw this out there because. Uh... I just it just amuses me. It's not strictly germane to this particular story. You know, there was the 1950s George Pal film, War of the Worlds, which is an okay. It's a good film. It's you know, it 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 has to take liberties with the story, just like all the others. And of course, it's updated the technology, and we drop atomic bombs and stuff, and it doesn't work. And for the uh, thing, but in the 19 90s let's say early 90s late 80s there was an american tv series war of the worlds which was a direct sequel to the george pal film even even reused characters from the film footage from the film the the aliens and the the war machines from the film and the damnedest thing about that series which i kind of enjoyed it had some problems is the fact that meh, everyone's forgotten. 1950 aliens came to Earth. We dropped atomic bombs on them to try to stop them. Uh, they, they destroyed our cities. And yet, in 1990, yes, you can find some paperwork here and there in the military that says, oh yeah, 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 I remember that. Yeah, we've got those guys, we've got their war machines stored in a hangar here. Or, But, but by and large, the man on the street completely and utterly oblivious to the existence of aliens invading the earth 40 years earlier and you just go how did the filmmaker think they could get away with that and in fact there's even a piece of dialogue where they say well i don't remember that it's like yeah i don't know it it, a lot of people don't i don't know as as it so happens the the time scale of that broadly speaking coincides with the you know it's it's a decade later or whatever than the mm-hmm. Second World War. But nevertheless, the late 80s and early 90s, the the Second World War still, you know, it permeated culture. I mean, I, it's not like people have forgotten about it or unaware of it now, but it was so much more so then. And mm-hmm. for them not to have kind of drawn the parallels between that which was at least only a terrestrial conflict and what would happen with an alien invasion is is kind of surprising yeah so but it, it in a way it reminds me of the nasa ending of this in that they just i don't know we've gone to mars and we see these green flashes and nobody immediately says hey that's what presaged the invasion in 1895 or whatever it was you would think the people at nasa who study mars would be up on this uh, they they would know everything we know about Mars, which would include everything we learned from the from the Martian invasion. But anyway, do you have anything else um, on this? No, that that's everything I had. I think I think that is it. Uh, it was I enjoyed it. I I thought this was a this is if not the best, it's one of the better uh, adaptations of War of the Worlds uh, certainly that I've ever seen. Um, and uh, it makes me even want to go maybe check out Jeff Wayne's musical version of Spartacus, uh, which is apparently a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I saw that in passing. I'm like, hmm, never heard of that. But, well, maybe. We'll see. Well, Simon, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure, as always. Listeners, I hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. There are over 500 previous episodes available at FusionPatrol.com. Come join the conversation on Twitter, our website, or Facebook. Find out how you can become a supporter at Patreon.com slash Fusion Patrol. Supporters get early access to all regular episodes, bonus episodes, and more. There's even an optional podcast series where we're looking at the classic TV series, Babylon 5. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production.
On next week's episode of Fusion Patrol, we'll be taking our final look at Man from Atlantis when we tackle the episode Siren. And later this week, as a Patreon bonus, we will be looking at the Babylon 5 episode Deathwalker. We discuss how this show is not the West Wing, the nature of leadership on Babylon 5, and the surprising, enduring popularity of the VCR in the 23rd century. Come join the conversations.